0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chief Technology Officer of Amazon.com, Dr. Werner Vogels.
1: Good morning, Vegas. Come on, get some all these phones, guys. Good morning. Yeah. We've had quite a few great days. I hope today you'll, you'll enjoy yourselves as well. In the keynote, we'll be talking a bit about going under the hood of some of the AWS services. And of course, serverless is uh, still on my mind as sort of the next generation of how we're going to build systems. So those are the two things that uh, I hope you walk away with today You can learn something about the things that we've done at AWS for ourselves, how we've been scaling. Um, as always, I think this is, uh, it's very important to realize that we couldn't be doing this without you. Many of the features and services that you'll see today and that actually saw yesterday probably also in Andy's keynote have all become because you're very vocal about how you want to see the next generation of development happening. And so it's it's really amazing to be able to work together with you and really think about sort of how should modern development look like? What are the systems that we're building, sort of the next generation high-scale, internet-scale systems that we'll be building and how we can help you? Do, do, Do that. Hey, Alexa. Yes, Werner? What should I be talking about?
2: I'd like it if you could talk about us. I mean AWS, how we have built systems
1: that can scale, are reliable, and secure. Okay, where do you think I should start? Why don't you start with your worst day at Amazon? Actually, that worst day in Amazon was 14 years ago. Um, December 12th. 2004. Um, in those days, we had a, a, a mechanism called super-saving shipping. Basically, if you spend more than $25, we would ship it for free to you. And December 12 was the cut-off date to make sure that you could still get your packages in time for Christmas. And we were running already in a service-oriented architecture with three very large data sets. Orders, Items, which is the catalog, and Customers. And the Customer Database ran on an Oracle Rack Cluster. Basically, we had scaled up the database for, 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 for that. Um, amazing architecture. However, it runs on a shared disk, and there's also of the locking technology that makes sure that all the nodes that are in the cluster can actually write. A bug in that logging code took down the database for 12 hours. So basically, we were dead in the water as whole of Amazon for 12 hours because of a bug in the database. And we realized that it was somewhat ourselves to blame. First of all, we were using the technologies outside the scope. But also, we had no control over it. We had no control over reliability, scalability, performance, because all of this was sort of black box code for us. And really making doing scale-up really gave us a single unit of failure that we just really couldn't handle. So that drove, that particular failure, has driven a lot of the development that you now also see coming back in AWS. So the first decision that we made was actually to start using databases as everybody else in the world was using them, basically creating a a thin layer over traditional databases, where we would do the sharding and the partitioning, and really making sure that we have total control over performance and over reliability. Now, a very important part in all of this, of course, which you, which you get when you start uh, sharding and start thinking about decomposing it into smaller building blocks, is that you have an opportunity to reduce your blast radius. In a blast radius, we mean that if a failure happens, and remember, you know, everything fails all the time, and whether it's hardware or networking or transformers or your code, things fail. And what you want to achieve is that you minimize the impact of such a failure on your customers. Basically, if something fails, the minimum set of customers should be affected, if that's the case. So we go to what's called cell-based architectures. Yeah, and Cell-based architectures basically create independent units that are able, if they fail, it's only that unit that fails, not the overall system. And of course, in AWS, yeah, the units are regions and AZs, and all of them fail independently. But more importantly, inside those AZs, you still are making use of cells to ensure that even a smaller set of your customers is only effective if something goes wrong. So if you look at this, for example, a regional service might be something like DynamoDB. Yeah, it doesn't expose AZs to you, but under the covers in AZ, everything is still split up into smaller cells to make sure that if something fails, only that cell is affected. And even we do that for services like, for example, EC2 or EBS, that are what I would call zonal services, that actually expose the idea of AZs to you because you decide where to run uh, an instance, or where to create a disk. Inside of those are still smaller cells to ensure that the blast radius stays at the minimum. And These are important concepts for us. So when we build new services, we all make use of cell-based architectures to ensure that we have total control over how our customers will be affected in case of failure. Now, if you think about relational databases in that uh, picture that I showed before, yeah, but even if you go to sharding, you still are dealing with a massive monolithic block the way over which you have no real control. And if I look at sort of the cloud nativeness, yeah. These databases are not cloud-native. They're designed almost for single-node instances. where you have a disk attached, and that's where they're optimized for. So they're not really a good fundamental building block for database innovation. Definitely not if you want to go to really massive scale. And even, especially if, you, even if you do the sharding like you do there, you're basically re-replicating a whole lot of existing code over which you have no control at all. So when we started thinking about how can we build a database that will be the future of database innovation, you basically need to move away from the models that have been created in the 80s and the 90s for databases and go to a true cloud native modern database. So we started off by looking at sort of the uh, the fundamental building blocks that are part of a database system. And we decided to rip out the storage and the log processing and move that over into a multi-tenant, fault-tolerant, self-healing storage service that is actually database-aware. It's not just a storage unit. It's actually a database-aware storage service. The cool thing is then that we now get control over that storage service. We have control over the scale, the reliability, the performance, and we can start innovating there and really go to a world where the database suddenly becomes a true platform for innovation. So that's the storage that sits underneath Aurora, and Aurora has been the fastest-growing service within AWS since its inception, and it's basically we can do that because we can actually support internet workloads that no other database can support. What you see here, there's now a shared storage service sitting underneath a minimum set of database functionality. and We can do this by basically doing multi-AZ deployments and really limiting your blast radius by going to very small units of storage. Now, in all of this, reliability plays an extremely important role of course, because you need to be able to build your mission-critical workloads on top of Aurora. Now, if you look at sort of how you build these kind of storage systems, yeah, quorums, quorum technology, in general, is what we always use. Yeah, and so if you think about quorums, yeah, a quorum basically says that you have a certain set of nodes, the most popular one is three nodes, and the read set and the write set need to overlap making sure that if you read a previous written um, transaction, you actually can make sure that you always can read the last one. Yeah, and it also means that the write set actually needs to be larger than half of the quorum set. Basically, you need to be able to write to a majority of the nodes. And a very typical setup is to actually have three nodes, yeah, a quorum of three. The write set is then two, the read set is also two. Yeah, they overlap. However, this scenario is uh, quite troublesome for us, because at scale, we like to believe that we need to have better control over our failure modes. And so if you lose one AZ in this particular case, database is still alive, because you've got two nodes left where you can write to, and two nodes where you can read from. But in reality, if you would lose a whole AZ, the likelihood that some other node will also fail, completely independent of it, is actually not zero. So if you lose another node in all of this, basically, your whole database is dead in the water. And when we think about the failures uh, that we really want to survive in a system like Aurora, we need to be able to go to a much higher quorum set. So basically, we replicate six times. So the complete quorum set is six nodes, the right set is four, you read, say, that's three. And so what happens now, at this moment, you lose an AC. You can still write and read. If you, however, run into another failure, you can still read, but you can't write anymore. So that's already a major improvement. So what we then need to focus on is how quickly can we get back to a quorum set that allows us also to write. And at one moment, you have to start thinking about that, you know, you have no more control over reducing the mean time between failures. That might be completely out of your hands. What you do have control over, though, is the mean time to repair. And so if you can do very fast repair, you can actually survive for a short period of time the fact that you can't read or that you can't write. But very quickly, you can re-replicate these units. Now, to be able to do that, the units need to be so small of storage that you can actually re-replicate really fast. And so in Aurora, the units are 10 gig. And even on a 10 gig link, they will only take you 10 seconds to re-replicate and make sure that the database is completely healthy again. Of course, if you run on a much faster link, you can actually really speed up the kind of re-replication that you need to do to make sure that you get very quickly back to a database where you can also write. So this allows us in Aurora to have what we call an easy plus one failure mode, that even in the most stringent of failure scenarios, Aurora can still survive and have only very brief moments of write outage. The other thing to look at when you start building uh, the next generation database systems is looking at what is actually being written. Because if you look at the traditional databases who have all been designed to have attached storage to it, there's massive inefficiencies in all of this. If you take, look at the typical MySQL uh, write, it actually has a lot of activities under the covers. Yeah? You write the data, you write the metadata, you write the logs, uh, you do a double write to avoid torn pages. And so you basically do five writes for each write that you need to do to the database. And then you move that to EBS, and EBS copies all of those, does all of those writes to its backup volume, and then you do all these writes and transfer them over to your ba- to your uh, to your backup, who then also has the write. This is enormous inefficiencies. And if you start thinking about what are we actually writing, these data pages that you write, two of them, yeah, are actually hugely inefficient because you also move the log, and in the log is the before and after picture of the data page. So basically, if you look at a log, you're able to reconstruct the data page. So you don't need to move the data. If you just move the log to your storage unit, and the storage unit is database aware, you're able to recreate pages there on the fly without actually having to move the data itself. So if you look at how we do this in uh, Aurora, we basically only move the log. And the communication between primary and backups is log plus metadata. So if you then actually take out one of these storage nodes, if you look what's happening inside there, a write from the primary basically gets persisted in an update queue. And at that moment, you can already acknowledge the fact that this is stable. Then you move this over to a, a hot log, where basically you're gossiping with the other storage nodes to see whether there's any pieces, any gaps in the log that you need to fill in. And then, which is step number five, you slowly start building these data pages, because you have the information before and after. And you can do this in a lazy manner, because as long as these pages don't get evicted out of the cache, they're not really needed. Or if they do get evicted and you don't have the page ready yet, you can create it on the fly. This is the kind of innovation you can do if you have total control over your storage unit and actually really make it um, sort of database native, the storage uh, service, instead of treating it as a DOM disk. Now, the other thing we wanted to do in Aurora is make sure that it is blindingly fast. So here, you see the advantages on the right side. So can we also improve performance on the read side? Yeah, so thinking about how can we avoid quorum reads, yeah, where you basically have to read from three different nodes in this particular case, and where maybe one of these nodes may be slow. Yeah, so basically, the performance of the read is the slowest read. So what we've done here is that, We actually are already doing housekeeping on uh, the log sequence number. And the log sequence number basically is the last number of the read view that you should be presenting. And we know which of the storage nodes has acknowledged that LSM. And you also keep track at that moment then what the latency is between the storage nodes that you actually have been writing to and reading from. So you basically pick the, the, the storage node with the last sequence number that you actually are looking for, and the one that's the fastest, because you have all this information. So these are kind of innovations that you can do if you have total control over these systems. So if you look now at Aurora, it is a true base for innovation for database capabilities. Yeah, if you look at the kind of things that we have been done, in the past uh, years for Aurora, it is amazing. This would never have been possible if we would have stuck with traditional enterprise databases because they are not built for a modern era. They're built for the 90s, where there was a simple website and a database, and that was all. But that's not how our systems look like anymore. We really need a base for modern innovation on top of a core database uh, infrastructure the Aurora gives us. Now, for example, let me see, pick one. Um, many of you will be programming Ruby Rails. Yeah, and one of the things that Rails gives you is this, uh, the ability to do object relational mapping. Well, basically, you have your data structure that translates into a schema, and your database runs that. Now, if you make changes to your data structure, the schema needs to be updated. In most databases, that's a very expensive operation. Basically, they do an immediately complete table scan and copy. In Aurora, because we can do this in a uh, very lazy manner, we only create sort of the metadata for the new database, and then slowly, on demand, start creating the new pages for it. We can do that because the storage service is database-aware. And that means if you want to use A a relational database with an object-relational mapper, Aurora absolutely is the place to go. So we have now a basis for major database innovation, Uh, a good decomposition, and also really reducing read latency and write latency by being database aware, by being storage aware, and so. Really taking a step back allowed us to decompose the database into control planes that, where we have control over. Alexa. Yes, Werner? Was this what you were looking for?
2: Yes. But I think there were many more lessons learned from that event. Did you keep all your relational databases?
1: Ah, yeah. A part of that uh, event was when we started thinking about sort of how to shard and how to build, how to get control over our database storage, um, we started actually doing a deep dive on how data operations were handled within Amazon. And a deep dive on this showed that 70% of the data operations were just key value. Basically, it would be a SQL query with only a primary key and a single row coming back, 70% of the queries. 20% 20% of the queries actually would give a setback, multiple rows, but we still only operate on one table. There was only 10% actually of the two database operations that were really relational. And that made us think that maybe the era of using relational databases for everything had coming to an end, because we could start building these purpose-built databases that could really target those specific use cases with much better performance, reliability, and scale than these traditional databases were giving us. So really, that deep dive on understanding how we are actually building our systems at internet scale allowed us to start thinking about different types of databases that could each and every one serve particular use cases much better than this big hammer that where which you could do all storage operations. And as you know now, we have a whole collection of purpose-built databases. Uh, Each of them be the optimal storage environment, the optimal database environment for your particular use cases. And definitely these days we see that customers are easily making use of three or four different types of databases to make sure, for example, that you can handle your, your graphs. Now, all of this got triggered quite a few years ago. So when we uh, did this deep dive on how we were using storage, we we made a decision to start tackling that very big use case first, key value. And we built a system called Dynamo that, uh, in 2006, um, had its uh, first occurrence as as the technology that powers the Amazon shopping cart. And after that success, how we demonstrated how you could build a scalable database systems that could be really reliable and you have total control over performance, consistency, and cost. We wrote a paper about that in 2007. And that has triggered, in my eyes, the whole non sql non-relational database revolution that we have seen since. Well, many have copied uh, Dynamo as we described it in those, those days. Um, but we've also seen quite a few other databases arrive that are really purpose built for the unit and for the kind of work that you need to do. So in 2012, we launched DynamoDB, which basically had taken the lessons of, uh, what is it, six years of running Dynamo and seeing how our customers were using non relational databases and built again a foundation for internet scale performance. Because if there's one thing in Dynamo that I think is really core to how we have built it, is to be able to operate with performance at scale. It's also fully managed. You no longer need to think about in which AZs it runs. There's good solid security in there. And it's really built for modern applications. For example, it is the base underneath um, the games that Supercell makes. And remember, on day one of such a game, yeah? millions of customers will show up. And this database then becomes the crucial performance point in your application. And so performance at scale is really one of the most important concepts of Dynamo. Now, let's take a look at how that actually works. Yeah, so you first have to figure out, this is so more or less, you get a GET item, um, that unit, uh, that request gets sent to the request router, and then dives under the covers to the authentication service to see whether you're actually allowed to do this operation. And then it goes to one of the storage services, where, which has leader election to determine where to actually write the items to. Yeah, so if you do put a put, then you send it to the leader. You do leader election on that, and then replicate that to the other nodes. And of course, we don't just have one request router. We literally have hundreds of thousands of storage nodes and an equal number of request routers, all very small, all making sure that we can actually apply the cell-based architecture principles to how Dynamo works. And of course, these large sets all sit in different AZs. And whenever you get an update, you actually do spread this out over the different AZs to make sure that you can handle any type of failure that can occur. But, you know, we can't have massive storage units because you really want to reduce your blast failure. So you need to start partitioning in your storage cells, And as such, uh, before you actually uh, push a get item towards the storage unit, you have to figure out where that partition lives. And so then it becomes important if you have these different charts underneath there that you are actually able to actually give consistent performance even with these different shards, and especially if maybe the traffic towards these shards starts getting un- un- uneven, yeah. In this scenario, where you have three shards and everybody gets one third of sort of the proficient throughput, that's great. But there is always one that actually starts to get hot at one moment, especially if you use a sort key and a primary key as sort of your uh, partition index. And so, when this starts getting hotter, and hotter, something actually needs to happen, because you can't start throttling. You can, but you don't want to. So we built in what was called burst capacity, basically taking the read and write units from the other partitions and moving them over temporarily to the hot partition to make sure that that one can continue to serve the reads and writes that has been asked for. But, you know, that wouldn't necessarily serve our customers really well, because you can only do this in sort of five-minute increments. And that was not really the way that we would want to handle spikes. You know, spikes happen on much faster timescales than five minutes. So we added something called adaptive capacity. Basically, when this one partition is getting hot, we allow it to grow, such that you still have sufficient IOPS to support the data that actually lives in that partition. But, yeah, and then the partition is growing, and you actually get, um, again, the IOPS that you're looking for. But that's not really the way that we want it, because you don't want these partitions to grow, because that increases the blast blast radius. You really want to reduce the blast radius. So we introduced automatic resharding. Basically, when one of these partitions is getting hot, you just create new partitions and you move your write capacity and read capacity, spread it out over the shards that you have. And even then, if more traffic starts getting in again, you just reshard again. Yeah, so in this way, we're able to actually really provide you with a system that is consistently scalable, regardless of the load that you push to it. Now, of course, you know, we were running on relational databases. And actually, they had to move over those, uh, the data and the functionality over to DynamoDB. As quite a few customers have asked me, but those are relational. And DynamoDB is non-relational. Can you actually move a relational pattern over to, uh, to Dynamo? And the answer is yes. Now, if I look at another service within Amazon, I already talked about the three large data sets. In this case, we're talking about items and offers. That's another large data set. If you look at the page. Um, those are items, basically the items from the catalog. That's offers. That's basically the different pricing that different sellers actually have available for it. And then you still have relationships, basically the different variations of this particular item. Now, if you look how the item master service is running, it's basically sharded over 24 Oracle databases. Yeah, and it is holds something like what is it? 600 billion records, and we see about roughly five billion updates a day happening. And this database is growing about 30 to 40% per year. So in essence, we're in trouble there. Because after 24 databases, things become really hard to manage. Uh, And actually, the availability of those databases isn't as great. And definitely, the performance is very hard to manage. And basically, if a whole set of DBAs on call to babysit these 24 partitions. Now, if you look at some of these schemas that are in that one, it's actually not that hard to migrate those schemas over to DynamoDB. Yeah, and so we went through a whole migration phase, moving that database, right, the 600 billion, six billion, 600 billion records that are in there, and moving them over to DynamoDB. So the requirements for that were, of course, that you can't do this migration and actually take your service offline for a few days. That's not the case. You need to be able to do this in real time. And So we make use there of the database migration service. On one hand, you start migrating the database as is, and then you continuously backfill the new updates that have happened and push those over to the new database. Very successful program, and we managed to move over the item and offer service over to DynamoDB without losing any of the capabilities, but now have a basis underneath there that can actually scale 30 to 40% a year with massive updates every day. So if you're interested in, uh, in this, there's a session this afternoon, DAT347, um, where the guys that actually worked on this will go in detail about how we migrated this. Uh, so we end up now with a whole set of purpose-built databases. Yeah. And it is really interesting to see how all of you are now really slowly to start making use of all of these databases to make sure that you actually have exactly the tools that you need for your data storage. At the same time that we were building Dynamo, we were also building Amazon S3. Yeah, and in those days, we maybe thought more about sort of that S3 was sort of blob storage. But I think that's, that's and where Dynamo was a database. But I think what we've seen is that these things merge over time. And if you see, for example, in S3 with S3 select, you're able to do queries against your blob storage that, are, uh, that actually retrieve only small parts of the data that's in there. So you see a merge happening there. In my eyes, S3 is one of the world's digital wonders, truly. It's very simple to use. You put, you get, and the storage just works. Yeah, but it's fascinating. It's a really fascinating and complex distributed application that is behind, uh, running behind the scenes there. And to tell you a bit about it, please join me in welcoming Vice President and General Manager of S3, Mylan Thompson-Brukevich. Mylan. <laughs>
3: who uses S3 and Glacier today and there are many of you so S3 and Glacier manage exabytes of storage tens of trillions of objects and we do that across many millions of drives in our data centers just to give you a sense of that scale in a single region S3 will manage peaks of 60 terabits per second in a single day. And that rate of growth is driven by the incredible variety of unstructured data that you store in S3 and Glacier, and that ranges from the source data of data lakes to driverless car storage to genomics research. It's an incredible variety, and people store it in S3 and Glacier because it just works. I could easily spend the rest of this keynote talking about the internals of S3 and Glacier, but I am going to focus on one aspect, which is data durability. Let's start first a little bit back in time. And when S3 was first launched almost 13 years ago, S3 had eight microservices. Those microservices did things like serve requests for objects, It stored object keys, and it did the metering and billing for both requests and bytes. And of course, it orchestrated the replication of storage across physical data facilities. Now, more than 235 distributed applications make up S3 and Glacier. And they're all working together to deliver a single customer experience behind that endpoint. And as is the nature of a distributed system, our microservices do one, maybe two things really well. And as an example, one of our microservices has nothing to do but prepare and bring on live, online new drives into the service. But the, today, what I'm focusing on is really durability. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is that it's so core and central to our commitment to your data. It's not just the systems that we build. We think it is just as important to have a culture of durability. And that's what we bring every day to what we build for you for S3 and Glacier. I'll give you an example. For every new feature that we build and for every major internal change, we do a durability review And a durability review is very similar to a security threat model. But rather than modeling the risks of intrusion, we're modeling the risks of loss of data. We're looking for things like hardware-based corruption and the network and on disk. We're looking at operator interaction with the system. We look at many different things and just like a security threat model, we put in place software processes and mechanisms to protect against that loss of data. I'm gonna cover just a few of the things that we do to give you a sense of it, but there's many more that we do as well. So we talk about how can we put operational safeguards in place so that inadvertent error of an operator doesn't cause any inadvertent loss of data. We make extensive use of integrity checks through checksumming throughout the system. And checksums are important because it helps us prepare, or it helps us prevent or look for um, uncorrected bit flips in RAM. And when we use checksums, we do them in two ways. One is we run checksums end to end throughout the system. We run them from S3 clients all the way back to data on disk. The other thing that we do is we do point checksums between loosely coupled systems. Another place that we look for is correctness of algorithms. This is incredibly important in a large-scale distributed system. And so we have different things that we do here. Sometimes we'll do a formal proof of how an algorithm is mapping out. We'll do static analysis tools like TLA Plus to validate a distributed algorithm. And we'll do flow diagrams that maps out the execution of different algorithms across systems, different systems that we work with. That's all about the correctness of the algorithms that we put in place. But we don't just trust those tools. We have independent auditors. We call them durability auditors. And they're systems, they're microservices that we build that constantly and repeatedly visit every byte in S3. And keep in mind, we have exabytes of storage. These these durability auditors are visiting and checking for those integrity checks that we talked about. So just as we talk about these systems, really for us, underlying everything you see here and all the rest of the services and the processes we do is that culture. It's the mindset of what we built. Now, fundamentally, S3 and Glacier are built on fault tolerance. So our software has to account for the natural failure rates of drives and hosts. But We're unique because we also account for an extra dimension of durability, which is the total loss of a data center, a whole building in a region. And we build our software and we account for our capacity so that you can still retrieve your object in that case. So let's start first with what sits inside the data center. Fundamentally, at the heart of our designed for durability is our former durability model, which is basically math. It's math that characterizes the risk of losing data over time given the natural failure rates of drives and hosts. What's unique about S3 and Glacier is that we have built almost 13 years of operational experience at scale into that durability model. We're constantly updating it, and we're updating it with the real-world, observations and lessons we see in all of our regions now there are two main concepts in that durability model one is the time to fail the other is the time to repair the time to fail is basically the rate at which hardware fails and hardware again is both hosts or servers and drives time to repair characterizes how fast we can rebuild the data that was on the failed hardware. Now, keep in mind, this model is a starting point for how much physical redundancy we have in place in a region to keep data safe from these natural failures in hardware. Now, the durability model is a design tool for building our software. And where theory meets practice in a very large distributed system is repair. We don't reason about mean time to failure in NS3. For us, it's all about the actual time to repair. And in the actual time to repair, we account for detection of what to repair, as well as the repair process itself. And we look at the worst case scenario for repair. We don't look at the mean, and we don't look at the best case. We are the most concerned about the slowest time, the slowest bytes to repair in our system, because our mission is to protect all your data, not just the average case. So we take that, and we build it into the different microservices that we have for repair. And I have some examples, it's not the exhaustive list. But some of the things that we do as part of that repair processing is we're constantly monitoring proactively and reactively for failure. We're doing seconds level granularity checks on the liveness of the host. We're doing the checksumming, the strong checksumming that I talked about, which handles data at rest. And for data that's in flight, we do these live inline checks of data integrity. One of the interesting things about S3 is because we operate at massive scale in our cloud environment, we can treat total time to recover as an elastic property. And what that means is depending on the total time to recover is in a given region on a given moment, we can scale up and down our repair microservices dynamically to account for the target that we want to achieve there. Now, it's not just that. We don't just worry about durability for what sits within the data center. What's unique for S3 is we worry about the loss of a whole data center or the long-term impairment of an availability zone. Now, we have never seen the loss of a data center, but, you know, we build our software and our systems knowing it can happen. If you know how S3 works and Glacier works, you know that are distributed our uh, multiple AZ storage classes replicate storage across three AZs. And in any AZ, in any given AZ, you have at least one data center. And it's a data center building. It's not a floor, it's not a room, it's a whole building. And often we have more than that. The way that we build S3 and glacier, is that our multi-AZ storage classes have enough capacity and, and redundancy in other AZs in the region to withstand the total loss of a whole building. Now, we know this is a very rare occurrence. And as I said, we haven't seen it to date. But we worry about it. And we include the scaling and the capacity modeling and the software system to handle it so you don't have to. So what does that mean? Just like you have security in S3, you have multiple layers of protection against data loss. You have a culture of durability for S3 and Glacier, and you have a model, a durability model, that's informed by almost 13 years of real-world operational experience at scale. You have all the different microservices of S3 driving repair, and we're constantly innovating there based on those durability reviews and other things our engineers come up with. And you have that extra protection of a loss of a whole building and still being able to retrieve your storage. Now, all that is just part of what sits behind that simple put and get to your S3 bucket. I wanted to say thank you for using S3 and Glacier, everyone, and I'm going to hand it back over to Werner.
1: Thank you, my Mm -hmm. Amazing story. Um, and, And one of the things I want to call out there is that at AWS, we're in this very fortunate position to have millions of customers Making use of our systems every day. And that means that we can observe things that nobody else can. And we can improve our systems because of the continuous focus on measurement and understanding how our customers are using their systems and then have a base for innovation. Alexa. Yes, Werner. We now talked about Aurora, DynamoDB, S3. Is there anything else we should cover?
2: There is so much to talk about, but I am sorry I made you talk about your worst day at Amazon. (laughs) Why don't you talk about the best day of this year for you?
1: Ah, finally, a happy story. Yeah, my happy day of this year was actually November 1st. This was the moment when we switched off one of the world's largest, if not the largest, Oracle data warehouse. I moved it over to Redshift. (laughs) Now, how, how can we do this? Yeah, because Redshift is amazing technology, but it has also made enormous improvements in the last year. And it uses something that I just talked about, namely the fact that we can observe how hundreds of thousands of businesses are making use of Redshift what kind of queries they run, what the runtime of those queries are, what the wait times are. Yeah, and all of those have helped us with this deep look under the covers to be able to improve the performance of Redshift in a radical manner. And this has many, many pieces to it. There's faster string processing, there's the introducing of the DC2 nodes, um, you know, really looking at, so how do we do fast deletes, uh, single row inserts, all of those kind of things where you have a good view of how your customers are using your system, you can actually look at what's really important to your customers and what can you improve there. And so what we've seen, because of all of these optimizations, enormous improvements in the performance of really real-world workloads. A 17x improvement by caching of repetitive services, a 10x for bulk delete. 3x for single row inserts, and even a 2x on commits. So a massive improvement in performance because we know how our customers are using our systems, and that can drive the way that we do innovation for you. And as a result of that, even in the past six months, Redshift has become three and a half times faster. That's amazing, and we can do that because we have this very feedback loop with how our customers are using our systems and what is most important to our customers. Now, one of the things that's really important to our customers is that they don't have to wait for their um, database queries to run. And if you've ever had or worked in an organization that had one of these centralized data warehouses, you know waiting times are always there. Now, on average, about 87% of of the queries that get executed on Redshift Never have to wait. So what can you do for the remaining 30%? Because I don't want anybody to wait. And so we introduced last week Amazon Redshift concurrency scaling. Where we oh. where we basically, we've, we, once we see waiting times starting to arrive for your query, We will fire up additional Redshift clusters so that you never have to wait. And for every 24 hours that you run, we give you an hour of concurrency scaling for free. And this basically means that 99% of our customers will actually never see an additional cost for using concurrency scaling on a Redshift database. And so all of this allows us to innovate such that we become an amazing platform for anyone that wants to build modern digital systems. However, if you think about the analog world, there's probably no better example of analog than the musicians world. And Fender absolutely is a company that really targets making beautiful music. And actually, they're making beautiful music in the cloud. Fender guitars have an amazing, fantastic history, and I like to believe a truly exciting future with AWS. They're taking rock and roll technology to the next level. You might even say they are taking it to 11. So please join me in welcoming the Chief Product Officer of Fender Digital, Ethan Kaplan. Ethan.
0: Thank you, Werner. I'm Ethan Kaplan, and I have an amazing job. I'm the chief product officer for Fender Digital. Fender guitars are synonymous with rock, jazz, blues, great music of all types. We've been there for some of the most iconic moments in rock and roll. That's right, Fender was there at Woodstock when Jimi Hendrix blew the audience away with his rendition of the Star Spangled Banner on his 1968 Fender Stratocaster, serial number 24098. Jimmy was left-handed and famously played his guitar upside down. It went down in history as one of the first true rock star moments. Fender was also there when Bruce Springsteen recorded Born to Run. He paid $185 for that Fender Esquire hybrid. He called it the best deal of his life. He wrote in his memoir that it was his favorite guitar. But we already knew that, because he's been playing it for 40 years. Also playing it for 40 years, Keith Richards, with his go-to Fender Telecaster Blackguard, which he nicknamed Macabre, after a character in a Charles Dickens novel. And I can go on and on, because ever since Leo Fender started building guitars in the early 1950s, we've been the choice for music's biggest names. And that popularity continues. Fender has been on 90% of the world's stages in the last year, with artists like Bruno Mars, Flea, Brad Paisley, too many stars to name, moving the Fender tradition forward. And we're working on building the next generation of Fender players, but here's the challenge. When I started at Fender, we did the first ever consumer segmentation study of guitar players, and we learned some really wild things. First, we learned that 45% of players every year are new to the instrument. And these people will spend four times as much on lessons as they did on the guitar itself. But here's the even bigger problem. 90% of them will quit within the first six months, most within the first 90 days. But there's an opportunity there. The 10% of people that make it through will buy eight to 10 guitars over their lifetime. Most of those will be Fender. So there's a huge opportunity for us to move that needle if we can just keep people playing. And here's how we're leveraging that opportunity. The first thing you need to do when you pick up a guitar is tune it. There are 60 guitar tuning apps in the App Store right now. None of them actually taught you how to tune. So we did. Two years ago, we shipped our first application, Fender Tune. It's been used by millions of people and has five stars in both App Stores. We built another app, Fender Tone. It's a remote controller for the world's best-selling line of digital amplifiers, the Mustang. For both of these applications, we use AWS to store custom settings for the tuner and custom presets for the tone uh, and the amp in the cloud. But these two apps were just for starters. What was next was really big. If you have a dusty guitar in the corner under your bed or in a closet, you might want to get it out when you get home because we're revolutionizing how you can learn to play guitar. A year ago, we launched Fender Play, it's a digital learning app that's going to keep more beginners engaged in continuing to play. It's just that good. Our aim was to make an online learning app as good as the guitars we make. So unlike most video instruction, if you've ever looked on YouTube, this isn't a guy on a couch with a GoPro and his cat walking in the background. It's tightly structured curriculum, 4K, high quality, studio shot video and it has instructions for more than 500 songs that you know and love. So why did we choose AWS to build these apps? Well, I needed an engineering team to focus on building things, not thinking about how to build infrastructure. We needed to be able to iterate our products in response to the data that we are learning from customers and customer feedback. And we needed to scale really, really rapidly. So let's go into how we built Fender Play on AWS. Two years ago, we started filming content on two sound stages in Los Angeles, and we're generating a lot of content. We shoot six days a week between the two studios producing up to 30 pieces of content a day, so there's a lot of video coming out of there. We went up to Seattle and met with the AWS team and presented the problem. We said, we're generating terabytes of video a week. How do we get that to our users? And of course, they had answers. They helped us devise a video processing pipeline where we can go from the local SAN in the studios, watch the SAN as video comes out of post-production, automatically transcode that video using elastic transcoder in sizes down to cell phones and up to 4K television sets, and simultaneously auto-populate our CDN and our CMS while archiving the raw video to Glacier. This pipeline operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week as we process files. This was also our first entry point into a serverless infrastructure. We used Lambda as triggers for the Elastic Transcoder, and we immediately saw a cost benefit. As we were getting ready to launch the application, this gave us the confidence to turn it up to 11. So when it came time to build the most important part of Fender Play, the part that collects money, we felt confident using AWS as a platform. AWS, again, helped us develop our subscription service, We use the API gateway to respond to requests from the applications and the App Store callbacks. That handles all of the CRUD operations for users, or the create, read, update, and deletes for a subscription. We use DynamoDB as well as streams to relay all this data to a variety of systems, from taxes, revenue recognition, accounting, analytics, to email, push notifications, et cetera. Everything eventually ends up in Amazon Redshift, where we can use any given analytics platform to analyze the data in real time and respond to what the users are doing and shape the product. And the results, we're using 40 Amazon web services today. We've launched 10 applications on them. We've made 352 million Lambda requests since July and 747 terabytes of video are currently stored there for nearly 5 million lesson views. Not on this list is Amazon fresh. We use that for snacks. But our AWS bill as of last month is 15% less than it was a year ago while we're serving 21 times the traffic, and that is still increasing. So what's next? Well, we got a taste of the future, and we're going entirely serverless. This goes from everything from Fender.com to every single application we make, and it's been working great for us. And I got my wish. My engineers don't think about servers, they just think about making great products. We're a global company, so we're going to be using Transcribe and Transcode to close caption all of our videos from multiple territories. We also get a lot of consumer data. We can start telling how people are playing and when they're playing and using that to make better consumer experiences using machine learning. And it's not just for online instruction. Our factories are even looking to use Internet of Things technologies to monitor humidity and guitar production and SageMaker to improve our wood grain matching. Fender has powered the music business for the last 70 years. And now, with Amazon Web Service tools, Fender and Fender Digital are looking forward to powering the next generation of musicians for the next 70 years. I'll share with you a brief sample of our latest trailer for our holiday promotion.
2: Always wanted to play guitar but don't know where to start? Introducing Fender Play, the easiest way to learn guitar. Learn the songs you love at your own pace with the complete learning app for guitar, bass, and ukulele. Our easy-to-follow video lessons get you playing in minutes. Just pick your style and get going. Choose from hundreds of songs by top artists. Learn at your own pace with bite-sized lessons, and we track your progress. Our instructors show you how to play chords, scales, and new techniques. Stop searching and start playing today with Fender Play.
1: Amazing story, even. Thank, Thank you, you for Good being to see here. You, um, actually, I have. A, I believe analog is really important, and one of the pieces of analog is, of course, voice. I'm a strong believer that the next generation of systems we will be building will have voice interfaces to the digital side. Is that something that you guys are doing as well?
0: Yeah. In fact, we're piloting something with our retail partners where you could actually, in a store, ask Alexa to give you the details about a serial number of a guitar. It will give you specifications, when it was made, model, type of wood, etc.
1: Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for being here.
0: So we actually have something for you too. Um, right. They're going to bring it out. We are fresh off the factory floor, yeah. Corona, California. <laughs> um, this is an American professional Telecaster special made for AWS.
2: I
1: okay. want to
0: give it to you. Wonderful. Thank you. That.
1: Great job. Thank you so okay, much. Cool. Yeah. It's amazing, guys. Ah. There's one thing, of course, to give a guitar to a bass player and suddenly start realizing six twings? What do you do with that? <laughs> so as, he, as um, even said, serverless is increasingly becoming the dominant uh, pattern for building your applications. Uh, And so um, even at, let's say, traditional organizations like Vendor are all going serverless. And and why why is that happening? I mean, the the advantages are obvious. Uh, Why are so many customers flocking towards serverless? No infrastructure to provision. It scales automatically. It's highly available and secure over multiple ACs. And most importantly, you only have to pay for what you use. And not just for the hour that something has been running, but really only the execution time. And that makes it extremely powerful for many organizations to move to. If I look at the hundreds of thousands of customers that have been building serverless applications on top of AWS, there's a pattern that you see that is very interesting. Namely, this new technology that we've been pioneering since four years. Normally, we'd expect that sort of the younger tech-oriented businesses are the first ones to try this out. But what we're actually seeing is that large enterprises are the ones that are really embracing serverless technology. The whole notion of only having to build business logic and not have to think about anything else truly drives the evolution of serverless. And of course, crucial in all of that was that we created Lambda. Yeah, and so four years ago, we pioneered the whole serverless movement by providing compute as a serverless environment as well. And we've seen enormous investment over time in innovation. And whether that is a different language support, yeah, or longer runtimes, different nodes, and more capabilities in terms of development around it, and if you actually went to Peter DeSantis' keynote on Monday, we talked about how we're innovating also at the micro-virtual machine level to give you very exciting new capabilities. So Firecracker gives you the ability to get better isolation and better efficiency. So I'd like to invite Holly Masrobian, the Director of Engineering for AWS Serverless Applications, to come on stage and share some deep details about what we're doing further to advance AWS Lambda. Holly.
2: Thank you, Werner. Today we heard Werner talk a lot about scalability, reliability, performance, security, and cost. And as we build out AWS Lambda, we're optimizing for all of that in the serverless domain. AWS Lambda is event-driven serverless code execution currently available in all 18 AWS regions. And as a foundational service, we launch Lambda in every new region that AWS launches. We build our systems behind the scenes to distribute load, scale up and down, and detect and route around failures, so your engineers don't have to. And of course, as we do that, we must preserve isolation and maximize utilization. Just three years after general availability, AWS Lambda already processes trillions of requests every month for hundreds of thousands of active customers. One of our primary systems in the Lambda architecture is called a worker. It's where we provision a secure environment for customer code execution. What does a worker do? It creates and manages a collection of sandboxes and sets limits on those sandboxes, such as memory and CPU available for function execution. It downloads the customer code and mounts it for execution, and it also manages multiple language runtimes. It executes the customer code through initialization and invoke. And finally, it manages AWS-owned agents for monitoring and operational controls, like CloudWatch. This week, we announced an exciting new capability with Firecracker. It was announced by Peter DeSantis during the Monday Night Live keynote. Firecracker provides secure and fast micro VMs for serverless computing. Firecracker micro VMs work with the KVM hardware virtualization to enable security from the ground up, and the minimal device model reduces attack surface area. It's built with speed by design. It initiates user space code in less than 125 milliseconds and with a creation rate of 150 micro VMs per second per host. And it ensures scale and efficiency with low memory overhead of less than five megabytes per micro VM and thousands of micro VMs on each host. With Firecracker, you can see that we're making the same deep investments in our infrastructure to support serverless computing as we have to support EC2 instances. We don't want our customers to make hard decisions between security and functionality, and so these performance characteristics of Firecracker are the foundation of our Lambda worker. Firecracker provides the security and speed necessary to keep our workers safe and separate without negatively impacting performance. Let's look a little closer at the worker and Firecracker. This is the logical view of a worker host. At the top is customer code. This is what we run on your behalf. We support a number of languages through different runtimes, including Node, Python, Java, C Sharp, and more. And underneath the runtime is a sandbox that hosts the runtime, and underneath that, a guest operating system, and here we use Amazon Linux. Underneath is a hypervisor and host operating system that the hypervisor runs in. And finally, we have the physical system hardware. To keep workloads safe and separate, A single function runs on a micro-VM, so we have many accounts, each with their own micro-VM, running a single function. With this architecture, we're able to run as many functions as we can provision micro-VMs on a worker. And these functions can be from a single or multiple accounts, so we have a lot of flexibility on what we run on a worker. Let's travel down the security boundaries on a worker. We isolate function code running in the sandbox from the guest operating system using Unix primitives, including cgroups, namespaces, SecComp, IP tables, and cheroot. This boundary provides a level of security and limits the guest operating system. But it is not sufficient isolation to host multiple accounts. Firecracker MicroVM technology provides a sufficient security boundary to host multiple accounts. Prior to Firecracker, we used EC2 to provide the required isolation at this level. Under Firecracker, we're able to run with much more flexibility on high-performance EC2 bare metal hardware. Like all services, we want to keep servers busy and improve overall utilization of our workers so that customers don't have to. You are probably wondering how this helps us to drive higher utilization with AWS Lambda. On your behalf, Lambda gathers a variety of workloads to drive higher utilization rates than with a homogeneous workload. The lightweight, performant, and secure micro-VM technology enables to optimize, and we can keep our servers busy by mixing workloads on a physical host. On AWS Lambda, at all times, we have a number of functions in need of a sandbox with specific performance characteristics for execution. For instance, Lambda functions can range from 128 megabytes all the way to three gigabytes, and we want to place these functions for execution on a sandbox on a specific worker to optimize for hardware utilization. In a distributed model, balancing workloads across multiple servers made a lot of sense, but in today's serverless architecture, there's a better way to do it. It's better to concentrate the load on a few sandboxes. That way we can improve performance on cache locality and instantly scale. When we look at this from a server perspective versus sandboxes, packing the same workload on a server is inefficient. Because it will either make the server very busy, running hot, or nearly idle, servers tend to consume the same types of resources and also be active in the same time interval. Now, we can randomly distribute workloads across a set of servers to improve the situation. That way, we have a chance of the workloads packing well together. The most efficient placement strategy is to pick the workloads that pack well together and minimize contention. It's all about putting the workloads where we can get optimum hardware utilization. So, that is a high-level look at the Lambda architecture and what Firecracker can do now. And I can't wait to see the innovation that's ahead. If you'd like to gain a more in-depth understanding about Lambda and how we leverage Firecracker, this afternoon, Mark Brooker and I are hosting a 400-level talk where we'll go into a lot more detail on the inner workings of AWS Lambda. Thank you.
1: Amazing kind of innovations you can do if you have total control over your infrastructure and how we can help you sort of really sort of build the next generation of systems. Um, As I said last year, the only thing we want to do is build business logic. And really, that's really what's happening now. And we have customers that are building pretty advanced systems. And for example, take Coca-Cola. They were able to uh, reduce a pipeline they had to do for reporting to the FDA from 36 hours down to two minutes. Expedia is literally executing billions and billions of Lambda invocation each month. And what you can see is that the applications that have been built are really being composed out of multiple building blocks. Now, yeah, what I would like to call sort of a traditional called systems of systems. But basically, the individual components are being used to stitch things together. And not just using the AWS serverless services, yeah, not only Lambda, and DynamoDB and SQS and SNS. But stitching all of these things together also often includes services from our partners. And I've always said that AWS is so much more than just AWS. All these services that are providing on top of us actually allow customers to easily integrate things like Trilio is for telephony, or SendGrid for emails, or PagerDuty for managing your environment, or Stripe if you want to do mobile payments. And all of these are sort of stitching things together, and serverless is the ideal environment to to do this. Now, with literally hundreds of thousands of businesses moving over to serverless, you guys are giving us a lot of feedback, because this is not the way we used to do development. So the tools from the past no longer work. We really need to reinvent how we are doing modern application development. Now, I know that all of you have very strong opinions when it comes to development. I'm an engineer, yeah, and we used to battle about VI or Emacs as your best tools. That's a discussion that no longer happens, of course, but there are so many other areas where we all have strong opinions about what are the right tools for us to use to do the development that you want to. And whether it's IDE's, you know, your favorite building environment, where you have all these shortcuts memorized, there's so much muscle memory in there that we all have our favorite development environment. Or your favorite programming language. Now, the way that you go from the concepts that you have in your head to the code that you need to write is often driven by what is your favorite language. Our programming models, or orchestration and coordination. We all have very strong opinions about this. I actually think that within Amazon.com, we have something between 15 and 20 different workflow systems. Because each of us has their own opinion about what the best tool is to get a job done. And that's great. I love that. And at AWS, we want to make sure that you have those tools. Now, if we think about IDEs, you yeah, I really think that Cloud9, which we launched last year, is the absolute best IDE for cloud-based development. But we're not so arrogant to think that that's actually the tool that you think is best, because maybe you've been programming for the past 20 years already. So I'm happy today to announce the integration of serverless development in all the popular IDEs out there. So PyCharm is available today, and uh, IntelliJ and VS Code are uh, in developer previews. Basically, these are toolkits that you can create, that you can integrate into your IDE and give you full serverless development. Most importantly, of course, it gives you step-through debugging for your favorite Lambda functions. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You asked for it. So, we give it to you. Yeah? Now, the same thing is, of course, around languages. Yeah, we're all so, so gung ho on what your favorite language is and what the advantages are of one over the other. And as such, of course, we've been delivering this to you Node, uh, JavaScript, Python, Java,.NET, last year, Go. And this year, we're adding Ruby to it. Um, but on me, on me, I, I cannot really hear this. Someone said, what about Erlang, Haskell, Rust, C++? Any of those other languages are out there. When are we seeing those? So we uh, decided to change course and uh, give you an ability to start bringing your own language to Lambda. So. We're launching today custom runtimes for Lambda, where you can bring your own execution environment. (laughs) So on day one, uh, we've introduced into the open source support for C++ and Rust. And a number of our partners have been building great language support as well, PHP, COBOL. Erlang, well, you guys can go do Scala and Haskell. Yeah? But anyway, we've given you now a platform on which you can bring your own favorite language to it. There's a specific uh, runtime API that we're giving you where you have to sort of register your, uh, your execution runtime for your favorite language into. But now there is no limitation anymore to what kind of language you can use to do serverless development in. But if you then think about sort of the support for your programming models, if I uh, if I think about sort of how we've been observing the challenges that some of our customers are having with Lambda right now, is that one of the things that I've observed is that there is a lot of duplication of code. Yeah, you know, basically. You may have, for your organization, five or six libraries, for example, that you use in every piece of code that you use. And the way that Lambda functions right now is that you would have to re-upload that code every time. And it's very hard for you to do sort of making sure that each and every Lambda function that actually includes this code actually gets updated, where you get new versions of that code. So today, we're introducing Lambda Layers that actually takes away this duplication of code, where you can start creating layers that you can reference in your your application to then sort of no longer have duplicated code. (laughs) Important in all of this is that we support versioning, of course, out of the box. So you can have multiple versions, so you can reference versions of your layers. And these layers can, of course, be things that you've created yourself or that you use in your organization It can be open-source layers, or it can be vendor-supported layers. And also, of course, the tight security and policy control associated with it, such that you can actually indicate who is allowed to to access these layers across multiple accounts. Very happy, of course, always working with partners on this, and out-of-the-box companies like Datadog and IOPipe, Protego, all are supplying you with layers um, that integrate well with their products so that you don't have to create, again, the access mechanisms if you're using those products. So thank you for those partners. I have a look back what we, uh, what we launched last year, was the uh, serverless application repository. And again, quite a few of our partners have put in their complete applications or components or services um, that you, where you can build your systems of systems out of. Because that's really the power of the AWS serverless application repository. Now, what I've seen, though, is that it's not just that you want to use that particular application that sits in the repository. You actually may want to compose multiple pieces together that each by themselves are one of those applications. So today, we're launching nested applications using serverless uh, application repository that makes it very easy for you to stitch your serverless applications together out of multiple components, services, that live in the repository. So basically, you start creating these applications, store them in the repository that can do sort of common operations. Now, this, for example, is what I would call the SNS fork pattern. And basically, you're publishing to certain SNS topics, but what you also need to do at that moment is actually um, store the information of that topic that you've been publishing um, for analytics later, and maybe you also need to store it for compliance reasons and you put it in DynamoDB. Now, those two th- applications there of actually storing it for analytics and storing it for compliance may be just standard-made applications that you put in your repository. You do not need to code them again. You, need to reference. you only need to reference them in the SAM environment that you're using. Now, if we um, look at the last piece, I think, where we are uh, all concerned about is workflows. If you build systems out of systems, yeah, where you actually stitch things together, orchestration becomes extremely important. Now, how can we make it easy for you to actually build more complex applications than just one serverless function? Now, we launched, I think, two years ago, step functions that helps you with this at a basic level. Yeah, You have all sorts of patterns there that are easily supported by step functions. And most importantly, actually, it handles errors for you, and it does retries. Yeah, so all of these are really what you would expect out of a modern workflow system. However, you have been giving us feedback that you want much more in this environment. You don't just want to build workflows that only include Lambda. You want to build a workflow For example, that includes AWS Batch, or SNS, or SQS as native components in your workflow. And so today, we're launching Step Functions um, service integrations, where you can build Step Functions with these eight different AWS services. (laughs) So Batch, ECS. Spargate, Glue, DynamoDB, SNS, SQS, and SageMaker are all part of the services that, at this moment, you can orchestrate using step functions. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, of course, accessing your application that you built, your serverless application, is important. How do you do this? So API Gateway clearly has become the powerhouse of building APIs. And I think definitely, now that we have support for Open API, I think this is really the way, the gateway, to building your applications using APIs. Now, you guys have been, of course, telling us that it's not all the type of applications that you want to build that you can support with API gateway. You really would like to build real-time, stateful applications using your APIs. So. Happy to announce today WebSocket support for API Gateway. (laughs) This allows you to build real-time, stateful applications over the internet. And the cool thing is, as always, with API Gateway, you have access to multiple different computer environments. It works with EC2. It works with containers. It works with serverless. And the cool thing then is, is that you can start moving things, for example, from EC2 to serverless without having to change your APIs. So this front really becomes more and more important for you to help you transition from a traditional compute environment into the serverless world. But of course, in compute, there is another access mechanism. There's load balancers. Yeah, and until now, ALB you could use to access EC2 and to access containers, and today, also, you'll understand Lambda environment. <laughs> yeah, and this is really important, because it allows you to put these applications behind the load balancer, and you can start making decisions where things run without that you have to change things for your customers. You can really move things from either EC2 or maybe from your container environment over into serverless, without having to recode anything for your customers. I actually want to go back to, uh, to an example that uh, Ethan talked about. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really proud that, that we do this work together with Fender. First of all, I'm a big music fan. But also, this is such a traditional company that has made such an impact on the whole music industry that we're really proud to work with them. Helping them move into a digital era. And so one of the things that Fender uh, that was confronted with for a long time is that uh, these guitars are actually not made out of one piece of wood. They're actually made out of three or four different pieces of wood. And for them, the big challenge was to do quality control of that, to make sure that the wood grain and matching would actually be, sort of create a very nice guitar to work together. And so, Basically, they would need to find different pieces of wood that really work together so that they can create beautiful telecasters or stratocasters out of it. And so what they've done there to really be able to do this at scale and at a much better, let's say, quality level, is to put a camera in their factories that basically takes pictures of each of these pieces of wood, uses Lambda, of course, and Ethan already said they're all going serverless, and move that over to AWS to then use SageMaker to find the best pieces of wood that will fit together to be making your next generation guitar. And so, again, easy composable pieces, where you just compose things together, including SageMaker. Now, actually, coming back to this uh, that they're using a camera, I I strongly believe that uh, imagery, video, audio are actually no longer streams to be watched or listened to. They're becoming just data streams. If you look at innovations like the Amazon Go store, it's all video. We're able to innovate these days by processing audio and video at scale in real time. An interesting story I heard was that uh, you know, the new, the new cars that are being built, the new Audi's, has something like, I think, 1,200 different sensors in it. Yeah, they long-range radars, short-range radars, cameras on all sides, things like that. And sort of that's the future of having data flowing um, in the cloud and supports your driving. But what about these billions of cars that we really have? And for many of us, we always thought like, oh, you need to buy kits to upgrade your car and put all sorts of sensors in there. You know what? 95% of the problems in your car can be solved by just putting a microphone near the engine. Because remember, that's what your mechanic used to do. Opens up the hood, listens to the engine, and says, you need a new crankshaft. And you know what? If you actually have these very low-cost components, like small cameras, and cheap microphones, you can start building environments that can be processed in such a way that it can be as effective as 1,200 new sensors in your car. So audio and video are becoming data streams to be analyzed. And we can do this because of the advantages, both in terms of platforms, software platforms, as well as hardware. Now, an important role in all of this plays Kinesis Video. Yeah, I mean, we have customers that have actually 200,000 cameras. That are all streaming data into Kinesis, which then pushes it on by storing it into S3 and then processing after that. Yeah, and so, when you think about sort of stream processing, real-time stream processing, there's a very popular toolkit out there, Kafka. But what are the challenges with Kafka? Yeah, there's a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to Kafka. It's a difficult to set up difficult to scale, handling failures is a nightmare, having to restart all the clusters and the main nodes and things like that, and you really need specialists to be able to run this cluster for you, which needs to run in real time, because you've got the stream processing going through. And so this is what I would call the traditional heavy lifting that AWS is really good at in solving for you. So I'm happy to announce today, managed Streaming for Kafka. Fully-managed Kafka clusters, latest software, yeah, highly available because we replicate it over multiple A's, and highly secure because we give you all the tools that you need to protect your data and your users. So I really hope that uh, you start migrating the Kafka clusters that you have over to the managed Kafka service, and let us do the heavy lifting for you. Yep, so. So this sort of shows the kind of uh, work that we've done in IDE, in languages, in programming models, in workflows. And if you uh, all of this, this whole serverless environment might be new for some of you. And as always, we've been, uh, we've been helping you with the well-architected framework to make sure that you are all aware of what are actually the best practices on AWS. And uh, there's five pillars in the well-architected framework. But we've also been creating lenses on top of that. Basically, that covers all the different pillars. And there is a serverless lens, so I urge you to check it out when you are actually building your serverless applications to see what are the best practices and learn from your peers and the ways that we at Amazon have been actually collecting this information for you. Yeah, so. These are sort of the principles below serverless development that are served through the serverless lens and give you deep insight into it. I always think that you should be asking yourself, are you well-architected? So (laughs) actually, we see a change happening, where in the past, maybe, well-architected was a review that you would do afterwards. But what we see more and more, is that well-architected are a set of principles that actually companies and organizations and architects are starting to use upfront before they're building their applications. And especially if you have to move really fast. And one of the exciting customers that I met with a few times this year is the National Australia Bank. And they're moving really fast. They're moving mission-critical applications over to AWS. Using the well architected principles to make sure that they're on good footing. So I'd like to introduce to you the Executive General Manager of National Australia Bank, Juri Misnik. Juri.
4: Thank you, Werner. It's a p- awesome to be here at stage today, and it's a privilege to tell our story. We're bankers, but we're also technologists. And we have an amazing team of 7,500 engineers, software developers, builders, and testers uh, in our team. A lot of them are here this week, attending chalk talks, um, sessions, breakout sessions, and participating in the uh, expo. In fact, some of them are here today. Hi, guys. Uh, Let us tell us a little bit about National Australia Bank. We are one of the four major banks in Australia, and we've been helping our customers for 160 years. We have about 9 million customers, and we're serving them across 900 locations uh, in Australia, New Zealand, and all over the world. We provide a full range of services uh, across banking, uh, personal banking, and wealth. But business banking is our heartland. We are Australia's number one bank for business, and we're working with customers of all sizes, helping them through every stage of their business lifecycle. Their world is changing. Customers' behaviors are evolving rapidly and driving disruption across the banking industry. They demand exceptional, seamless, real-time, in-the-moment relevant experiences. And in order to serve our customers, we must adapt. But change is hard for us. Our scale and the nature of our services uh, make choices which will make directly impact customer well-being, financial well-being, and livelihood. What we do matters a lot. So our vision is simple. We want to be Australia's best business bank, trusted by customers for exceptional service. And that's why we're investing $4.5 billion uh, over three years in a major transformation. We're already one year in, and we're moving very fast. And at the heart of this transformation is our cloud-first technology strategy. Our AWS is our strategic partner helping us throughout this transformation. It provides one of the best technology stacks on the market, on-demand-scaled, constant innovation, and efficient costs. And with AWS help, we're moving bulk of our workloads to the cloud. And we expect some core banking workloads to be part of it as well. In NAB, we have approximately 2,500 applications. Some of them are very old. Some of them are more than 40 years old. So all these things about COBOL running on Lambdas might be very handy for us. And today, we have hundreds of applications running on AWS in production. This is just the beginning for us. We will have 35% of our applications running in the cloud by the end of 2020. So how do we do it? It starts with world-class security. As we transform, we must protect our customer privacy, security, and data. We're building modern architectures using agile processes, and we need a workforce that's ready. So one of the key things for us is AWS Well-Architected Framework. NAB has engaged AWS over 30 times in the last two years, and we did over 30 well-architected reviews. This deepens our cloud capability, and now we're embedding these well-architected reviews in our software development lifecycle. They help us identify problems early, iterate fast, and build great systems. Well-Architected is now part of our controls and compliance framework. This approach gives NAB, our customers, and our regulators confidence uh, that we're building things right. Just last week, uh, we migrated our foreign exchange platform, EFX, onto AWS. It's a regulated, critical, high transactional workload. And it's also global first for the financial services industry. AWS Well Architects had helped us build it right. It was also one of the key controls in our conversations and consultation with the financial services regulators. So let's look a little bit deep onto its architecture. It's a classic three-tier packaged application. And it's deployed in a highly available configuration across three availability zones. We're also using RDS to simplify management and operations of a data layer. And using AWS native services, we've been able to fully automate its CI CD pipeline. So the deployment time for this application for us changed from weeks to less than 15 minutes. Zooming out across our cloud infrastructure, as you can see, we're using a broad range of AWS services offering. For example, our engineers love Lambda. It helps us iterate fast, it reduces management overhead, and implement automation across the stack. And all this great innovation which Amazon is bringing today, which Holly talked about, will definitely be very well welcomed in our engineering teams. And our engineers love using other great services, like Dynamo, Redshift, Kinesis, and CloudFront. We're also reimagining how we serve our customers. So for example, we're piloting Amazon Connect uh, to replace some of our traditional contact center software. This will, this will offer our customers a richer, more engaging experience. We're also changing our entire approach to analytics, reporting, machine learning, AI, and data. And we've built NAP Data Hub and NAP Discovery Cloud natively on AWS. NAP Discovery Cloud is a playground for our data scientists, an environment that leverages the very best AWS can offer. And Discovery Cloud is powered by NAP Data Hub. So let's look at this architecture. Data is key for us. We need to be accurate, consolidated, traceable, and accessible. So NAB Data Hub is a 100% cloud native data lake built on AWS. We will be taking data streams from hundreds of our backend systems and backend source systems. We're storing and consolidating on S3. It also provides us full lineage. That means we can trace every data element back to its source. We can access this data real time through APIs. We can also load it in a wide range of AWS uh, and external services for our applications to consume. To implement all of this, empowering our people is absolutely critical. We've established NAP Cloud Guild. We've trained 3,000 of our engineers in AWS technology. I'm incredibly proud that just in six months, we have 350 AWS certified engineers in our workforce. And the momentum continues. Our engineering teams own what they build. We live by very simple principles. You build it, you run it. You break it, you fix it. We celebrate craftsmanship. And we're developing a community and a career growth path for our builders. So we're going very fast this year, and we're just getting started. We're also exploring other services which AWS offers, like SageMaker, Transcribe, and Comprehend, which will help us deliver exceptional offerings to our customers. We will have over a third of our applications in the cloud by the end of 2020. And this is a low bar for us. We're aiming much higher than that. We have hundreds, 100 applications on AWS today. And just in the next 12 months, we expect to triple this number. Our vision is to be Australia's leading bank, trusted by customers for exceptional service. And with AWS help, we will achieve that. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Yuri. Amazing story, yeah, that no one in financial services think that as a traditional, did you say, 160-year-old bank, you cannot move fast? You can. And it's amazing the amount of development that they're doing and how they're still on good footing with the architectures. So the well-architected framework, and I've talked about it almost every year, is extremely important to our customers. Because basically, what we do there is we continuously update and collect and update um, the pillars and the lenses to really reflect what is the best development that we can be doing now on AWS. We just launched an IoT lens uh, last week, I believe. Uh, If you're doing IoT development, please use that to dive deep. So the advantages of the well-architected framework is really to lower and mitigate risks. You know, to make better decisions about how you're building your applications, and really make use of AWS best, best practices. And if you do that, you really are able to build and deploy faster because you're making use of best practices. And there's five pillars in the Well-Architected Framework. Yeah? operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. And all of those have really deep technical content with them so that you can really take all these lessons learned from all the other customers, basically from the millions of AWS customers that we have, and really see what are the best practices, how you can be successful. So go to, this, um, go to the Well-Architected website, and you can uh, get access to all this deep educational content. So one thing that has been part of the Well-Architected framework is reviews. Yeah, and basically, if you, you would have built something, And you would invite a a solution architect from AWS to come by and actually do a deep dive on your architecture, basically go through all the questions that there are in the different pillars of the well-architected framework and see how you have handled that in your particular workload. And we've literally done tens of thousands of these reviews. So we have a really good insight into what are kind of the the common challenges, or the, optim- the opportunities for improvement, if you would call it, like, like that. And so we then often, after the readiness review, basically come up with a statement of work, remediation, that, uh, and planning for new, um, for new ongoing reviews. Now, of course, this doesn't really scale well, yeah? because we only have so many solution architects. And literally, all of you have been asking us, for well-architected reviews. So we teamed up with quite a few of our partners. I think, uh, I think the number was 120 or 130, I think, in Terry's keynote, where we've created the competency uh, for our APM partners to be able to also do these reviews. And the interesting thing is that uh, often uh, companies will invite these partners to do the review, and often then also ask them to do the work. So I understand that of the first set of reviews that our partners have done, about 70% of those partners also get to do the work. And so that's great. But you know, does this really scale? Uh, and does it really give you the integration of Well architected into every piece of your process? Because that's really what we want to do. We don't only want to review afterwards. You want to start thinking about Well architected when you start building your applications. So, we asked ourselves, can we do more? So, I'm happy to uh, announce today the AWS well architected tool that allows you to do the reviews yourself, come up with statements of work, find out what our common deficiencies are in the uh, workloads that you've been building. And so, this scales well because now you can do this yourself every time when you build an application or continuously while you're updating your, your systems. It's going to be a really important tool for you to be able to s- really dive deep into what are the best practices on AWS. So we really turned this into from fun- <laughs> we really turned this into a manual SA partner process into a self-service, and I really hope that you take my advice at heart to really do this continuously, yeah, not just once and do it over all your workloads. Interesting part of the, uh, the Well-Architected Tool is that it still focuses on education, really helping you understand what are the best practices for this, for the different kind of questions that you get asked in a Well-Architected Framework. And uh, <laughs> this is an interesting map that is actually part of the tool. And so all of these are active. And so these are all the different areas um, that we're thinking about. And you can zoom in to any of these areas. Click on them, of course, and get access to high-quality videos explaining exactly what it is. For example, this is section four, security events. How do you handle security events? Uh, Videos that are explaining sort of the best best practice topics for you. Resources around it. What should you else be be looking at? Uh, What are the best practices? And how do you create improvement plans? And we see a very interesting development happening around the well-architected framework. Namely, that you now can get deep insights not over this one workload, but over all the workloads that are being created in your organization. And I've seen more and more C-level executives becoming interested in what is the outcome of this. What is the outcome of the, are there common patterns to be seen across all of your workloads? For example, if the review turns out that in each of your workloads, you're not doing key rotation, maybe that's a time that you start doing investing in education around what are the best practices around key rotation and making sure that everybody's doing that. So the tool is not just an architectural help for best practices. It actually starts giving you insights over all the workloads that you have. So yeah, I really want you to continuously ask yourself, are you well-architected? So that more or less sort of concludes today. You're not standing up? Oh, yeah, two more things, by the way. Um, At AWS, we've been uh, creating a new long-form video content series that's called Now Go Build. It basically follows me around the world Talking to very interesting companies that are, uh, that are sort of young businesses that really advance the way our digital systems work. And so the first one of those will go live today on YouTube and later on uh, uh, Amazon Prime Video Prime Video for you to watch. And I visit the company called Hara Token in Jakarta. These guys are focused on the poorest farmers in Southeast Asia, and actually these days also around the world. Most of these poorest farmers have no identity. There's no data about their plot of land. And as such, it's very hard for them to get financial support or to get government support, because they don't even exist in the digital world. So Hara, using some blockchain technologies and other structures, are building a system that allows these farmers to get new microloans. And it turns out, based on the data, these microloans have about a 100% repayment rate. It's an amazing system Well, you get all the details if you watch that video. So let's actually look at the trailer for it. Our planet and our civilizations are changing faster than ever before. This is Now Go Build. Join me as I travel the globe talking to startup founders using technologies to make our world more interesting, accessible, and livable. These are the entrepreneurs that are creating the future we will live in. So it's available today on YouTube, and we'll be doing a a number of these. I already did one in Singapore with a very interesting company as well, and we'll be filming more of these long-form videos during the year. So, what have you done left? What's this one thing? Yeah. So we had quite a few, uh, f- quite a few artists at our uh, at our party over the years. Yeah. So what's an uh, what was an important date? I think actually they're all amazing. I mean Martin Garrix still, again this year, has been voted the number one DJ in the world. So we really have this very, have this great set of musicians that have played here. Now, if I remember well. In 2014, we launched Lambda. Absolute one of the best moments, best keynotes of my life. And it also coincides with the fact that Skrillex was playing there. Because I actually believe that of all the past years, Skrillex has been the absolute most best uh, musician that we've had. At least my favorite one. Let's put it like that. So something amazing happened a few months ago. Skrillex called us and said, why haven't you invited me back? Really? So this year, again, on the main stage, we'll have Skrillex. <laughs> we'll, have, um, we'll have great fun, great musicians, we have great games uh, for you all out there. So one thing, I want you to remember the thing that, uh, that Ethan told you. you know, if you want to learn to play guitar, start looking for uh, Fender Play in your app list. So with all of that, go build, guys. See you.